Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. As always, it's Mike Wall. For the holidays this year, my family gifted me the Star Trek Coda Trilogy. These books represent the end of a journey that began 20 years ago to explore the paths of Picard, Sisko, Janeway, and all of their crews beyond the conclusions of their TV shows and movies. Many millions of words later, that continuity must come to an end, as these characters' stories are being picked up and told in a different way, on screen, through Star Trek Picard, Star Trek Lower Decks, Star Trek Prodigy, and who knows what else to come. Today, we are speaking to one of the architects of the Coda Trilogy, the author of its grand finale, Oblivion's Gate, and one of the most prolific Star Trek authors over the past two decades. David Mack is a New York Times best-selling author of more than 36 science fiction novels and a consultant on Star Trek Prodigy and Star Trek Lower Decks. As a longtime fan of David's work, it is my pleasure to bring you this conversation today. But I must warn you right here, we are about to jump directly into spoiler territory. Even the rest of this intro will divulge some information that purists might wish to avoid if they haven't yet read the novels. So, I'm going to count down from five in Klingon, and if you're still here, that means you are ready to enter Oblivion's Gate. Vach! Losh! Wesh! Cha! Wa! Still with me? Great! <laughs> Let me give you a little background on these books before we head over and talk with Dave Mack. Like I said, Star Trek had a problem. The events of the novels, after having been lovingly crafted and curated by a small group of dedicated authors over the past 20 years, were being overwritten by the new streaming shows on CBS All Access, now known as Paramount+. Plus. But instead of relegating all of the stories in the novels to mere legends— as another famous franchise recently did, Star Trek decided to lean into the established nature of its science fiction multiverse. You know, on screen, we not only have the Prime timeline, but the Mirror Universe and the Kelvin timelines as well. So why not elevate the books to their own timeline? And why not end that timeline with an epic, mind-bending, time-traveling, three-part thriller. That, in a nutshell, is what Star Trek Coda is. Going in, you know everyone you love, at least this version of them, is going to die. The question is, will they be able to play their part in saving the multiverse before they do? Although the multiverse is a serious scientific hypothesis, different timelines affecting one another is wholly outside the realm of science as we currently understand it. 
Nonetheless, there were some fascinating connections to real-life science in these books, and I'm so happy that Dave Mack agreed to chat with me about them. So now, with that introduction out of the way, the final frontier awaits. Dave Mack, welcome aboard Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Thank you. Now, the first thing I want to say is that I am a huge fan of your work. I've been reading Star Trek novels for over a decade. And the thing that got me into it was the Star Trek Destiny trilogy, which you wrote. Back then, it was 2008, if I remember correctly, a few years after Star Trek Enterprise had ended its run on TV. And I remember living in that moment as a Trek fan and really feeling like Star Trek had ended and that I desperately didn't want it to end. And that's when I I discovered the books and uh, my fandom really feasted on them during those lean years, uh, to use Una McCormick's words to describe that time period. Uh, I've now read over a hundred Star Trek novels, many of which were penned by you. Um, so David, my initial question for you is about a small story um, that you may or may not remember that left a big mark on me. So when I was in graduate school uh, at Caltech, I tweeted a photo of the Star Trek bookcase in the Caltech Science Fiction Library, and somehow you saw that photo floating around the internet, uh, and you noticed a severe lack of recent Star Trek novels, you know, published since 2000 or so. And so you and your fellow Trek author, Dayton Ward, actually sent boxes of books stuffed with Star Trek novels to the Caltech Science Fiction Library, completely free of charge, out of the goodness of your hearts. Uh, and I was so impressed by this random act of generosity. Um, I was wondering, do you remember doing this? If you do, can you tell me why you decided to do that? I do vaguely recall doing <laughs> that and getting in touch with Dayton, who was a friend of mine, and sort of coordinating with him. Some of them were copies that we got from our editors at uh, Pocket Books because they had certain extra copies that we were willing to let go of. Some were copies of our own books that we had just sort of amassed you know, because we get a certain number of complimentary copies of our own titles and they just sit around for the most part. You can see them in the background here gathering dust. <laughs> so when we saw the, the tweet from Caltech about the, the sort of free science fiction library uh, mm -hmm. that you guys had going, we said, wow, there's a lot of classic Trek titles in there, but there's really nothing sort of representing the last decade, like 2000 to 2008 or 2010, somewhere in there. But uh, I remember thinking, you know, the recent titles sort of deserve just as much notice and just as much love. And then we also were thinking it's kind of important to sort of support this love of Trek at places like Caltech, because the scientists and the visionaries who go to Caltech, who work at Caltech, are the sort of people who inspire those of us who create Star Trek. And those of us who create Star Trek reciprocally inspire the kind of folks who end up going to Caltech. So it's kind of a, a circle of virtue, a virtuous circle, as they say. So we thought it would be a good thing to uh, help continue the relationship of Star Trek to the next generation of scientists you know, at places like Caltech. And we just wanted to foster that kind of uh, ongoing generational friendship between Star Trek and science. Uh, it was the same sort of thing that in 2013 led to a large group of us Star Trek authors uh, as a group visiting NASA's Johnson Space Center in wow. Houston. 
and they were very happy to have us. Their PR department coordinated the whole visit. We thought we were just going to come in, get a sort of quick walking tour with our own guide and, you know, in, out, done in a few hours. And by the time we were done planning it, we realized they had scheduled us for the whole day, <laughs> like in at eight, out at five, you know, like the whole day. They took us through every department. They introduced us to some of their top people. They had a different astronaut leading us through each section. They let us go inside their mock-up of the International Space Station. Uh, we got to go through the robotics labs. We got to see the new next generation design spacesuits. Uh, we got to see the next designs for, you know, or the, the working prototypes for things like, you know, the next Mars spacecraft. Uh -huh. They took us to the lab where they're working on the Alcaberry Drive, where they're trying to figure out how to compress space time to create faster than light travel without yeah. breaking, uh, you know, the, the laws of physics the laws of relativity, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it was a, an amazing day. And just to sort of put the cap on it, there was a Q&A, sort of an interview period where they had like maybe six of us from like, it was like a group of like 12 or whatever. They took six of us and they put us on the stage in the NASA auditorium with a moderator. And they were asking us some questions and then we were taking questions from the audience. And it was the same sort of give and take. It was the you know, the, the fact that these NASA scientists were doing the sort of things that spark our imaginations, that inspired us as children. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, I was born shortly before the moon landing in 69. Mm. Uh, and I grew up, you know, with just sort of a love and veneration of everything NASA, uh, space exploration, Voyager probes, uh, Mars, Mariner, all those sort of things. I just, I, I couldn't get enough of it. So, I had Star Trek on the one side for the dream of the future. And then I had NASA as the dream becoming reality in the present. Mm -hmm. And those NASA engineers that we were talking with while we were there in 2013, they were like, well, we grew up on Star Trek. Star Trek is what led us to become engineers. And I'm like, well, engineers are like you or how I ended up writing Star Trek. <laughs> and so again, it's that virtuous circle. So I think it was the same sort of inspiration, that connection between the dream and the reality and the fact that Dayton and I both have great regard for it that probably led us to making that contribution to the Caltech library. That's wonderful. Wow, what a great story. And I'm very jealous, even as a scientist, that you got a whole day getting to see all the cool new tech and science uh, at, at the Johnson Space Center. That's great. I got to hold a moon rock. Oh, my God. <laughs> let me hold a moon rock. Right, right. It's, it it, awesome. it's it's an incredible feeling to, you know, have a piece of another world in your hands. Um, yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. That's that's so wonderful. I, I, I love this. I completely agree with the virtuous cycle of science and science fiction feeding off of one another. And we'll talk more about virtuous cycles as we dive into the details of, of your book um, that we're going to discuss today, the uh, finale to the Star Trek Coda trilogy, which you developed alongside your fellow author, Satan Ward, who we've mentioned already, and James Swallow. Um, so just for our listeners, uh, Coda was published in late 2021 and serves to wrap up 20 years of Star Trek novel continuity, detailing the adventures of The Next Generation, DS9, and Voyager crews after their shows concluded. So while the plot of these books is not exactly scientific per se, I would venture to guess Dave, that it was developed in a very scientific manner because you were given this problem. And that problem was sometime in 2019 or so, you and your fellow novelists got wind of this new show and development called Star Trek Picard. And 
being more privy to the production information than the rest of us, you guys found out early on that the timeline for Star Trek Picard did not match the events of the TNG DS9 Voyager relaunch novels. And so you had to come up with a clever solution that fit all of the facts and obeyed the logic of the Star Trek universe. So like I said, I bet solving this problem, the inconsistency between on-screen Star Trek and the literary timelines was very much like solving a scientific problem. And I was wondering if you could walk me through how you solved it and how you came up with the plot for CODA that you did. The challenge essentially is that there's a, a fundamental rule that applies to most media tie-in writing, whether it's novels, games, comic books, etc., anything narrative really, is that what you create must be consistent with the canon, which is the source material, at the time that it is created. And at the time we were creating these books for 20 years, there was no new late 24th century Star Trek narrative being created. So there was nothing to contradict us. And we had no reason to think there was any more of that coming down the pike. And then suddenly the car goes into development and I knew about it way before most people did. I was in the room when the pitching started to try and get Patrick Stewart back into back into the Star wow. Trek fold. I was part of that discussion with the <laughs> uh, Star Trek creative team back in December of 2017. Oh, what I wouldn't get I, I, <laughs> I had my notes from that meeting. I was on the phone. <laughs> I was phoned in for that meeting at Secret Hideout. Wow. So I was, I was aware that this was coming way in advance and that it was potentially going to be an issue. <laughs> and then as it developed and I stayed more in touch with Kirsten Beyer, uh, another fellow Star Trek author who has since moved up the ladder to become one of the TV producers and a co-creator of the Star Trek Picard TV series. She would keep me apprised of the directions it was going and uh, you know, sort of what I needed to know. And Dayton, who had started working basically in a full-time work-from-home capacity for the Star Trek licensing department, he was also in the loop, et cetera. So he knew well in advance uh, what was going on. So we saw what was coming, and we knew that there was no way to reconcile the backstory of the late 24th century being established in Star Trek Picard with what we had been doing in the books for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. There were significant divergences in terms of, you know, our assumptions about the past, about what happened, relationships, causes and effects. And sometimes, you know, if the ideas are close enough, you can find a way to, as they say, retcon them, retroactively bring them into continuity. Yeah. Well, that wasn't possible here. The ideas were so different. They were so mutually exclusive that we just realized, wow, you know, once this hits, 20 years of what we've been doing in the books effectively becomes null and void. There's mm -hmm. really nothing we can do that will bring this into continuity with that. Like we, we can't reconcile this in a way that allows them to be the same continuity. So we realized essentially one of a few possibilities was going to take place. Either one, the people behind the shows and the books, the publisher and, and the, uh, the licensor, were simply going to say, well, stop producing those books, just wherever you are now, just stop right there and then pick up and go forward with new books that are based on the new continuity established in Picard and go from there. Or they were gonna say, well, maybe we run both at the same time, but we knew that was probably not gonna happen right. uh, for two reasons. One, again, the basic rule is 
you've got to be consistent with canon. And the reason for that is that the tail does not wag the dog. The tie-in products, such as the books, the games, the comic books, although they have their own audiences up to a point, they exist to serve and promote the canon property. They are there to serve the master property. They are not there to take the spotlight away from the canon property. So the notion that they would allow the books to continue doing just their own thing, going off in their own direction, eventually that would cause brand confusion for a certain segment of, let's say, new fans who come in because of Picard. And let's say they say, well, I'm going to check out some of these books. These Star Trek books look interesting. And they start reading it. They, they say, but this doesn't make any sense. The, the facts that are being given to me in this book don't comport at all with what they're saying on, on Picard. Right, What's going right. on? Why mm -hmm. don't these match? And that's the sort of brand confusion you just don't want to have because yeah, you'll yeah. lose customers like that. It's, so we realize they're probably going to go with option three, which is just shut it down. But we said, okay, what if there was a way to bring this to a close, but also reconcile it in some narrative fashion with what's going on? Um, and we realized that this was a possibility that they might take or they might not take. The, the trick here was there would have to be a compelling reason for the publisher to take on a big event sort of a thing, a trilogy or even larger, as we originally proposed, this was going to be a multi-book thing. You've got to give the publisher a reason to take that risk, to spend the money, not only on author advances, but on production, marketing, and just also producing X number of books that, you know, again, are going to be out of sync with a show that by that point is already going to be on the air. They're going to take this chance. There's got to be a reason. You can't just tell another story that's going to be one last great hurrah adventure, but it's going to leave the fictional universe pretty much where it was before you got there. Well, if you're not going to change the status quo, then what's the point? You might as well not do it at all. Mm -hmm. If you're mm -hmm. not changing it, if you're not doing something specifically to address this discontinuity with the canon universe, well, then don't bother. Yeah. There, there's no reason. You might as well just let it end. And we didn't want to just let it end. We didn't want it to just fade away. As they say, burn out, don't fade away. Like, well, if we're going to go, let's burn out. <laughs> and that's what you did. <laughs> that's what we did. So we sat down and I had one set of ideas and Dayton had his set of ideas. And we weren't really communicating. We were each sort of noodling on this independently of one another mm. and thinking, how do we deal with this? And how do we deal with that? And finally, I sort of had my ideas and I decided that I wanted to reach out and sort of build like a, a little team. And me and James and Dayton have always worked well together. We've worked together in the past on Star Trek Vanguard, which was mostly me and Dayton writing the books, and James had done a Mirror Universe twist on it for the uh, for the short fiction. And then we worked together again on a miniseries called The Fall for Star Trek. Then we worked together again. We were the three authors who were picked to write the 24 Live Another Day novels at Tor Forge mm. around 2015 to 2017. So working with Dayton and James, as I've said before, it felt a lot like getting the band back together. So I reached out to James. He was going to be in town, I knew, for July 4th weekend for the Thriller Fest conference in New York. And uh, I knew he didn't really have anything going on on July 4th itself, which was a Saturday. And I said, why don't you, uh, you know, while my wife and I were driving through the city, we'll pick you up. We're going to a friend's place for a barbecue. Why don't you come along, have some brisket, have some beer. He's like, sounds good, mate. <laughs> so we pick him up. We go out, we have our brisket, we have our burgers, our beer. 
And then I pitch him my idea for Coda. And mm-hmm. James's original response was, absolutely not. I hate this. I don't want to do anything like this. Really? Wow. Oh, he wanted nothing to do with it at first. <laughs> he was like, I think this is a terrible idea. Huh. <laughs> and I had to actually sort of sway him to it. I said, well, and I made the argument. I said, look, they either are just going to let it fade away, in which case all this work we've been doing just sort of gets forgotten and nothing gets resolved and there's no sense of closure to any of it. Or they do decide to do something, but if we aren't the ones pitching it, who knows who they'll go to, James? They could pick anybody for this gig. Consider all that you have done, all that I have done, all that Dayton has done over the last 20 years to build this. Who would you really rather see tying all this off? If it's not us, who would you rather see it go to? Would you really rather see somebody other than us doing it? And he had to stop and say, you do have a point there. And so we realized, okay, so whatever it is we do, it's got to address this continuity between the show and what we've done in the books. It's got to have a sense of closure, a sense of finality. Because if not, again, there's no point to do it. If you're just going to leave the status quo open to interpretation, then you might as well just leave it where it was anyway. Because you know, if it's going to be ongoing, then there's no sense of closure. So sense of closure, we realized, well, what are we really dealing with? We're like, well, we're dealing with a timeline that is no longer viable. We said, well, okay, there's a science fictional concept and it becomes a metafictional concept where the approach that we ended up taking, which was that something has compromised the integrity of the timeline that our characters take for granted. And in the course of trying to address that uh, problem, which has created this instability, this non-viability, they eventually make a terrible discovery, which is that they've thought all along that they are the root prime timeline. Mm-hmm. They discovered that they are not. They are what's called the first splinter. They are the, the first breakaway that led to countless other breakaways that have fragmented and created this opportunity for the, uh, the villains, the Davidians, who have evolved from what we saw in Time's Arrow into something far more powerful and far more dangerous. It has enabled them to become this threat, not just to the splinter timelines, but to the root timeline if they get past our heroes. Yeah. And our heroes eventually realize this is one of those cases where you cannot win. There is no way to win, but there is a way to not lose. Mm-hmm. And the way to not lose is you've got to cut the enemy off here. You've got to be able to, as Picard would say, the line must be drawn here and no further. <laughs> right. We have to basically be the firewall. We're going down. There's nothing that can save us, mm-hmm. but we can save everybody else if we make ourselves the break, the fire break. Right. We've got to be the last ones to go. Yeah. And that's what our heroes do is they realize we can't save ourselves, but we can save everybody else. And they basically become the last sacrificial firewall. And they realize the only way to do this is that they have to retroactively prevent their timeline from ever having existed, because that's what gave rise to the Davidians seeing this exploitable flaw. If their timeline, if their fracture, if their first splinter never comes into existence, then the Davidians never see the possibility and they don't go on this journey through time to become this predatory threat, as opposed to the relatively, not benign, but relatively unnoticeable, unremarkable scavengers that they have been. So, and then we realized, you know, once we started talking about it, it was pretty obvious to the three of us right from the beginning. We're like, wow, whatever we're doing here, it is not only a science fictional concept, but you realize we're basically creating a very direct, very 
obvious metaphor for what's happening to the tie-in program. Sure. Where the can the, the, the prime timeline they're trying to save is the canon. Yeah. And the only way to preserve and you know and fulfill your role to the canon is you have to fall on your sword. The tie-ins have to fall on their sword <laughs> to protect yeah. the canon. Right, right. And you know, we, in a sense, we as the authors are being asked to do the same thing that the characters in our story are being asked to do, which is destroy, in our case, the last 20 years of our work and for the characters, the last 14 years of their lives, throw it on the bonfire in order to save something, another timeline, another possibility. Uh, And as the characters themselves question within the framework of the story, how do we know that the timeline we're dying to save or to protect, how do we know it's going to be a good one? How do we know it's going to be better than the one we have? And the answer is, you don't. You have to simply go on faith. It has as much right to exist as we did, and we have a duty to preserve life, preserve the greater good, even at the cost of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so it operates on this very metafictional level. And since we realized we were operating at that metafictional level, we took that opportunity to just sort of drop in. We're like, well, this is sort of like the last of us. We tried to make sure we got in all the different series, a nod to SCE over here, a nod to the Gorkin books over here, uh, a nod to the political books over here, a nod to the Department of Temporal Investigations over here. Mm -hmm. Try to make sure our Voyager character got on screen, make sure all the series get represented. And then it was just a matter of, you know, uh, finding that sort of, some ways to give like little rays of hope. Like I know a lot of uh, readers have sort of criticized it for doom and gloom and a sense of hopelessness and like, oh, well, none of it mattered. I'm like, well, actually, no, it did matter. It mattered quite a bit. They went down to preserve everything else. There's nothing really much more Star Trek than that. And then again, major spoiler again, if you haven't read the book, I apologize for this, but the epilogue, which I call a grace note in keeping with the coda musical metaphor, You've got Benny Russell from Far Beyond the Stars as the meta author of all things Star Trek. He's got all of it in his manuscripts. So the notion is, yes, you know, it's sad that this had to come to a close, but that doesn't make it less meaningful or less important or less valid than even the canon storylines. It's just that's the way it had to go. Right. I love that. I wanted to ask about uh, the choice to use the Davidians and the choice to use First Contact, basically that temporal incursion of going back in time in, what was it, 2373-ish, mm-hmm. um, as basically the the main centerpieces for what drives this plot even to exist in the first place, that you had to decide that we're going to use the Davidians as the big bad guys, and we're going to use that particular temporal incursion in this whole logical framework of creating a splinter timeline. And there is a whole logic to how time travel works in Star Trek. And so you kind of did have to obey certain rules. Um, so how did, how did those choices come about? As with many things, these are the product of collaboration, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. Part of it is also what was taken off the table right from the very beginning. The first thing that we were told, uh, actually, this we started with our pitch when we were sort of just working out our pitch, me and Dayton. When I finally got together with him and said, this is what James and I came up with. And I pitched him my idea, or I should say our, our combined idea. He said, that's surprisingly close to what I came with, with on my own. He pitched me his version. I was hmm. like, holy crap, you're right. That's really close. We're, <laughs> we're really not that far apart here. The whole idea of using the Davidians 
was something that I brought to the table because it felt to me like the Davidians were a villain who never really were brought to their full potential. I think that they were used in this rather fanciful, semi-comical Times Arrow episode, which although it had a little bit of a spooky moment here and there with the Davidians, was really about just this goofy, let's meet Mark Twain, won't that be fun? We'll all wear old-timey costumes. And I'm like, do you really not understand what you've created with the Davidians? Mm-hmm. Let's take a moment here. We have creatures, let's say, who, although they exist on this other planet far, far away, they are apparently capable of, at will, moving through interstellar space and through time simultaneously. So they can go anywhere and be any when. When they are out of phase, they are invisible. When they are in phase, they are shapeshifters who can look like anything. Oh, and what do they do? They feed on death, fear, and pain. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me get this straight. These things are essentially the boogeyman. They are the angels of death. They are basically grim reapers. Yeah. They eat death. <laughs> they're either invisible or they're shaped angels. They can be anyone. They can be anywhere and anywhere. They could have been at the beginning of time and the end of time. This is, pardon my friends, this is fucking nightmare fuel. Mm-hmm. This is the scariest shit you've ever thought. If you really think about what these things represent, holy shit, if they got organized, if they had like a motivation, these guys would be a really fucking dangerous bunch of people to deal with. Absolutely. And then you've got the end of Times Arrow where Picard, thinking he's, you know, big tough guy. It's like, well, we know there's four of them in that cave down there. Lob a torpedo at them. <laughs> Bam, they blow up the torpedo. And we've beaten the Davidians. You blew up one cave with half a dozen guys in it. They move at will through space and time. (laughs) You really think you got all of them with one torpedo, Jean-Luc? No. All you did was tick them off, make them know your name, and give them something to hate. Mm -hmm. That's all you've really accomplished. (laughs) You've just ticked them off and you've put a bullseye on your head. That's Mm -hmm. all you've done. So originally, I had a, a story idea that I was working on back around 2012 in the sort of first pass of what eventually became the Cold Equations trilogy after it went through many, many changes. At the time, Pocket wasn't sure if they were keeping the Star Trek license. And so they told me to work on a trilogy that might be the let's turn out the lights on Star Trek fiction thing. So I was working on a concept where the third and final book in the trilogy was going to be something very similar in a lot of ways to Oblivion's Gate, but it was going to be a Picard-focused book the Davidians were going to basically be the villains. They weren't going to be on this cosmic scale of a threat. They were simply going to be personally arranging every misery that ever afflicted Jean-Luc Picard in his life. It's like they're arranging to, you find out they're the reason the fire kills his, uh, his brother and his mm. nephew. Okay. Uh, you find out, you know, they're part of how he lost the stargazer, like every misery that's ever been visited upon him. You find out they had a hand in it. It's sort of like Blofeld, uh, in uh, Spectre, you know, the saying to Bond, you know, I am the author of all your pain. It was a very similar idea to that. And the idea was going to be that, you know, elderly Picard afflicted with aromatic syndrome, his mind is unstuck in time, but suddenly this is what enables him to be on this level with the help of Anish to take on the time traveling Davidian. Suddenly he's able to see and perceive them in a way that others can't. And it was basically going to be him dealing with the Davidians once and for all, sort of putting them in their place. And then it was all going to end with, you know, the death of Picard and the whole crew was going to be there. It's symbolic, the death of the Paterfamilias, all that sort of thing. 
Well, that ended up not working out for a lot of reasons, but I put the idea on the shelf. There were a lot of things I liked about it, even though it didn't really seem viable. I had done a lot of research and a lot of prep work about the life of Jean-Luc Picard, his youth, the fundamental moments that sort of imprinted on his psychology. And I got to use a lot of that in chapter 40 of Oblivion's Gate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when Picard comes unstuck in time. Right. But that notion of the Davidians as the threat, it sort of goes all the way back to that. And part of the reason we stuck with the Davidians was that the editors, uh, at the request of Kirsten Beyer on behalf of the TV people, took a few elements off the table. We weren't allowed to use the Krenum from Voyager, partly because Kirsten had made significant use of them in like her last one or two Voyager novels. And she'd sort of resolved their continuity and their story in a way that she didn't want to see it screwed with. Mm-hmm. So we're like, all right, out of respect for what Kirsten has done over there, Cranham are off the table. So like one of the biggest time travel using species we know of, we can't touch. Next thing taken off the table, can't use Q. No okay. using Q. Can't even mention Q. We were also told Guinan's off the table. Don't mention Guinan. Can't use huh. Guinan. Like, all right, so the time sensitive character of Guinan, we have to take her off the table. And we can't use Q, which is fine because we didn't want Deus Ex Machina anyway. I was waiting for those two characters to pop up somewhere in this trilogy. And now I know why they didn't. We were specifically told we couldn't use them. Mm. And the reason is they they both feature into season two of Picard. Yeah, sure. And they were already planning at that point. They were already having conversations about what they wanted to do in season two. And they knew those characters were going to be a big part of their plan. So they took them off the table. We couldn't Mm. even think about using them. And that left us in the end as we worked it out with the Davidians. Now, as for how the Borg and First Contact wound up as this pivotal moment, that came from Dayton. Dayton was trying to figure out the inflection point because he realized, well, we're undoing a certain amount of continuity because the biggest discontinuity he saw right off the bat was 2385. You have the whole Martian colonies incident in Picard. And we were already playing past that. We were in 2386, moving into 2387 in the books. And there was no way we could retroactively drop in this whole thing about Mars. It was too late for us to address that. He said, but we can't just rewind to pre-2385 because that's not far enough back. He says, because they're establishing details about how Picard left Starfleet, when Picard left Starfleet. They're establishing details about Riker and Troy and their family, what children they had, when they had them, uh, what happened to those children, none of which matches anything we've done. Uh, we have to take into account the details they're establishing about Data and you know his creator's offspring and other things they're doing with the Sung-type androids. And we've got all this other stuff going on. So he's like, we can't just rewind to here. Going back to 2385, not far enough. 2381, not far enough. Even going back to Nemesis, 2379, not far enough. Because we had been doing stuff in the books that just started uh, doing major story deviations from their continuity that were set as far back as like 2378, 2377. The the Time 2 series. The Time 2 series, precisely. Which which sort of marks the beginning of my time as a a novelist back in Mm -hmm. 2003, 2004. And then before that, the SCE book. So we're like, okay. So he did the math and he's really thinking, all right, also I need to find a canon event, preferably, on which we can hang our hat. And eventually he arrived at first contact. He's like, okay, it's unlikely at this point that the new shows are going to retroactively establish any continuity elements prior to first contact. Like they're probably gonna play within the rules and stay within the lines on stuff up 
through the end of the movie. So we can, if we go back, if we rewind to first contact and use that time travel incident with the Borg as our inflection point, then we'd probably be pretty safe. That means we're rewinding 14 years of continuity. And for books that will get published in the years to come, that gives them a much broader range of sort of, you know, slate wiped clean, mm -hmm. a new range of years in which to play and tell stories in order to stay in sync with the new continuity. It gives us a, you know, a little more breathing room. So he picked First Contact, and I thought that was a brilliant choice. And then the next step was to basically make it all work from a story logic and a temporal logic kind of standpoint. And although I have to admit, you know, when he first pitched it to me, I was like, really? We're bringing back the Borg after everything I went through to get the Borg <laughs> off the table in Destiny? We're coming back to the Borg? And he goes, you got a better idea? I'm like, well, actually, no. No, I do not. Yeah. And once I got, I got into it, I realized it's actually kind of brilliant because as an ending note, it takes Picard back to his greatest arch enemy, his greatest fear, and his Achilles heel, which is the Borg. Yeah. I'm like, I, it's actually kind of a great note to end on. So I'm like, okay, so I, I see the value in it now. So that was how we ended, you know, it was Dayton brought the Borg and I brought the Davidians and chocolate met peanut butter and that's how we got what we had. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I really do enjoy that the Borg got to have one final appearance in the novel continuity. I want to return to the Davidians for just a sec, though. Um, so like you said, they're consuming all of these different splinter timelines. And with every timeline they consume, they grow stronger and hungrier. And if they end up consuming this first splinter, the novel universe timeline, they will have enough power essentially to eat the prime universe too. Uh, and so in scientific terms, we'd call this a positive feedback loop, or like we were talking before, a virtuous cycle between science and science fiction. Same idea, except it's not heading towards virtue, it's heading towards entropy and decay and death for it's everything. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle. It's an autocatalytic cycle. And it's very reminiscent of a lot of things that are happening today. I mean, the Davidians originally were just these parasites, right? That sort of fed on death here and there where they well, could- Like cockroaches. Like cockroaches. And then all of a sudden they start to proliferate more and more and more. It reminds me of how a virus proliferates throughout an ecosystem. It reminds me of other autocatalytic cycles that we see dangerous ones like climate change. Wait. Late stage uh, capitalism. Late stage capitalism, exactly. And so, cancer. my quest, what's that? Cancer. Can cancer is another great, great example of this kind of runaway autocatalysis without any homeostatic regulatory mechanism. And we know that That's life it. to persist needs both. And if you have one without the other, it's, uh, it's, it's not good. So, was there any particular autocatalytic? instance or thing that you modeled the Davidians after? Or uh, was there something that you wanted to evoke in the reader when they read about this kind of uh, vicious cycle? Well, from a conscious level, in sort of the story discussions with Dayton and James, I think we were discussing them mostly as scavengers who evolved into apex predators, but without losing the scavenger mindset, mm. rather than become a predator that maintains an equilibrium with their prey and their environment, they become a predator that doesn't know when to quit. They, they don't see, or maybe they refuse to see the logical end of what they're doing, which is, you know, at some point they're going to kill it all and they're going to be left alone in intertime with whatever reserves they've managed to battery store 
which they think will last, you know, for millennia, millions of years, whatever. And that's great, but that's still not eternity. At some point, your battery reserves are going to run out and you've already eaten all the grain. What's your next plan? Uh, mm-hmm. Where do you go from there? And of course, they haven't thought that far ahead because apparently, just like with humans, long-term thinking does not appear to be their forte. <laughs> and you can't yeah. really reason with them because the problem is that as a species, they have evolved from a mindset of scavengers. They have evolved from a mindset of carrion feeders. They see everything else as just their fair game to eat. Mm-hmm. So you can't really negotiate with them. They're, they're not there to negotiate with you. They don't even see sentient beings as worth talking to. We're just the cattle. Yeah. Why, why negotiate with us? Why, why would they give a damn? As far as unconscious motivations, obviously, I think, given the last uh, several years, maybe last decades uh, of life in America, I think the metaphor to late stage capitalism is definitely apt. Mm-hmm. But I think on an unconscious level, I also was very clearly working with a metaphor of cancer because at the time we were developing the story, developing the outline for the licensor for approval, my mom was dying of cancer. Mm. So I had that very sort of in the forefront of my head. And then as far as, you know, what a lot of folks have commented on as far as the uh, sort of the bleak tone, I guess, uh, especially for book three, I mean, obviously that's a product of where my headspace was at. 2020 was when I wrote most of the manuscript and 2020 was just an absolutely brutal year. Not just, you know, for me, obviously it was brutal for a large segment of the world, but for me, pers- you know, personally, uh, it was a pretty bad year. And then it started in January, 2020, when my idol, Neil Peart of Rush died of brain cancer. Uh, in April, my mom died of cancer. And then at the end of the year, in December, uh, my friend and fellow Star Trek author, Dave Gallanter, passed away of cancer. So I lost three people who were very important to me in the span of a year. Well, at the same time, you know, fearing for the future of democracy, fearing for the future of the West. And just so I had, I had all the sort of, you know, stuff on my mind, sort of preying on my thoughts. So I think that that was a big part of what influenced the tone of the book. But I think that an unconscious metaphor of the Davidians as cancer is certainly an apt metaphor. Uh, And I certainly can't discount it as a possibility. Yeah. Well, first of all, sorry for your losses. That's uh, that that was, that sounds like a rough year. Absolutely. It was a rough Uh, year. Hopefully it's behind us now. Yeah. yeah. Definitely the, the analogy to late state capitalism to greedy extraction of resources um, without any regard to environmental balance or equilibrium was what played in my mind as I was reading this um, story about the Davidians and what they were doing to all the different timelines. But like you said, cancer is basically that exact analogy, just not at the ecosystem scale, but at the cellular level. So uh, I can definitely see the parallels there too. So, you know, as I was reading this book, I was very impressed with the little bits of science nuggets that you dropped here and there. You uh, you mentioned the Higgs boson, for instance. You called wormholes Einstein-Rosen bridges. You noted that an atmosphere of a rogue planet should not have nitrogen-oxygen-dominated atmosphere without some kind of artificial help. Um, I even remember in your cold equations trilogy, which I loved, that you had the Enterprise hide in like the metallic hydrogen layer of a gas giant. <laughs> and when I read that, I thought, wow, this is so cool. This guy knows what's inside of a gas giant, and he cares enough to mention it in the book. Um, that goes back to my first 
Star Trek novel, my first short novel, Wildfire, which was part of the Star oh. Trek SEE series. Okay. Um, basically, it's a disaster story. I was basically told, write a disaster story in which, you know, we have the suicide mission that actually turns out to be a real suicide mission mm-hmm. uh, with actual casualties. And basically the story, it's like a submarine story, but I use a gas giant as my setting. So I did a lot of research into what are the actual, you know, mechanics and physics of a gas giant atmosphere. And when I started reading about, you know, it's not cold like you think, you know, once the pressure begins to build up, you know, it starts to get dense, it gets hot. Suddenly mm-hmm. you're dealing with a liquefied hot metallic hydrogen atmosphere. It's a lot like hot liquid metal. This is a crazy environment. It's incredibly high pressure. It's high temperature. It's deadly as hell. You make one mistake and you're cooked. Mm -hmm. I'm like, whoa, this is crazy. Uh, And once I started seeing the destructive potential of this, I'm like, I got to use this. (laughs) So I've got this story where, you know, the basic premise behind wildfire is a ship called the Orion is testing a wildfire device, which is a prototype device to ignite gas giants that are basically brown like basically almost brown dwarfs failed stars mm-hmm. the idea is to push them over the limit and reignite them and actually mm. see if you can create new stars ah. uh, this is part of a terraforming initiative you know combined with say old genesis tech or whatever sure well the thing goes wrong they're testing this wildfire device in this gas giant and what they don't realize and we don't find out till maybe part of book two is that there are intelligent aliens who live in the gas giant in the liquid metal layers who don't really appreciate us trying to ignite (laughs) their environment yeah and so they take out the orion and so the hero ship the da vinci gets sent to find out what happened to orion Mm -hmm. where is the orion and they go and they find the wreck and they're investigating but there's all kinds of crap going on down here and there's an upswell at one point where they're they have like an away team over here and they've got their ship facing the orion they're separated by maybe a few hundred meters trying to hold station inside this turbulent atmosphere. And then like an upswelling happens and it basically flings the Orion at the Da Vinci and they collide. Now you've got hull breaches, you've got hot liquid metal coming in, you've got system failures all over the place. Yeah. And that's, you know, as they're fighting this and security teams are going down, you've got the classic submarine moments of people making split second decisions. You see the hot liquid metal wall coming at you. <laughs> Do you try to save yourself and maybe doom the rest of the ship? Or do you seal the emergency hatch? Yeah. So you got the security teams dying all over the ship. You got segments of the ship being blown away. They lose half the crew like that, <laughs> like in a space of about two minutes. Half the crew just gets wiped out. The ship and the, the end note, it's a two-part story. The end, ending of part one is they basically realize half the crew is gone. The captain is down. Uh, we have no contact with engineering and we're sinking. It's classic submarine drama. Uh, and then, you know, it goes even darker from there, um, <laughs> <laughs> believe it or not. But that's where I did all my research about uh, gas giants. I'd actually done some even before that, back from my first ever Star Trek writing credit in 95, mm-hmm. uh, when I wrote Starship Down, right. the episode for DS9. Yeah. But they took Great out episode. most of what I, they took out almost everything I put in because they said, oh. this is brilliant, but we can't afford to produce this. <laughs> so we got all this silly looking vapor stuff uh, they were like, you know, water, liquid metal. They go, yeah, this is all great. We can't afford to do this on a TV budget. Mm. Like they, they said, we love your script. And the next time we find $150 million in unmarked bills lying around the Paramount lot, we'll shoot it. But <laughs> for now, 
we can't do this. Well, and that's why you became a novelist where you can do it. <laughs> I became a novelist where there is yeah. no special effect budget. Right. So, um, but so that, that's where all the sort of background on the liquid metal atmospheres yeah. came from. One other sciencey thing that jumped out to me from the Coda novel that you wrote is that uh, you noted how the Borg smell and that they actually just, they stink. I don't know if this was ever previously established in Star Trek canon, but it, you know, it, it opened that part of my brain up and was like, I never considered what the Borg would smell like, but obviously they would smell because they live at 39.1 degrees Celsius and 92% humidity. They would have bacteria all over them just having a feast. <laughs> It fucking reek. Yeah. It would be just the most hideous smell. It'd be like being in a hot house mm-hmm. with a bunch of people who've never known what soap is. Yeah. <laughs> plus, they've never brushed their teeth in their lives. You know, so they, they've got all, plus, as your mouth gets dry, halitosis gets worse. You know, fortunately, they're in a humid environment. They probably maintain some moisture level, but they don't eat. They don't drink. They take most of their nutrients, you know, by intravenous injection. They get the rest of it through regeneration, uh, cyber generation, whatever. So they're not really ingesting. They're not using their salivary glands. Their teeth are probably nasty. Mm-hmm. They've probably got, you know, all kinds of bacterial stuff going on in their gums and their throat. They probably have the worst halitosis in the galaxy. Yeah. These are the little things I think about. Well, Thank you for thinking about them because it makes the book that much richer and is, you know, totally in line with <laughs> everything we know about the human microbiome or rather the Borg microbiome. I don't know. <laughs> it's great. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about the last chapter because I really want to ask you about chapter 40, which you've already mentioned. This is the chapter right after Picard has pushed the button and detaches the splinter timeline from the rest of reality. And basically we're treated to like, I don't know how many, a dozen, two dozen brief snippets of Picard's life, but not his one life, but actually many the, possible lives. the many possible lives. And it, you know, flits back and forth between different times, different realities. While I was reading it, I got this feeling like I was watching a quantum probabilistic wave function, you know, fluctuating and fluctuating and fluctuating. That's and then exactly what it says in the opening paragraph of chapter 40, he's watching mm-hmm. waveforms collapse. Yeah. Uh, they build and they collapse. Some persist if just for a moment, but then they wash away too. And I love how it ends with it sort of converging and collapsing upon the Picard from the Star Trek Picard TV show. Uh, right. There's just a really beautiful literary, exploration of the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics and it's and it's also nods to uh you know various previous incarnations or not incarnations previous uh episodes and things we've seen in track for instance the life he lived as the sort of boring uh astro sciences officer that's from the tng episode tapestry mm-hmm. where he gets shot and he wishes you know he had never lost his biological heart to being stabbed by the nausicaan so Q shows him, you know, it's a, it's the it's a wonderful life episode, and he shows him the boring man he would have been if he had not learned the fragility of life as a young man. And then you know we sort of also have another allusion to that same episode later in that chapter when you know it's just it's a brief snippet of a couple of sentences of you know Picard seeing the knife coming out of his chest and he laughs. That's both an allusion to tapestry, but it's if you look at it in juxtaposition to the scene before it which is he's just met Beverly Howard, who is the mm-hmm. fiance of his best friend, Jack Crusher. And the next image you have is of him being stabbed through the heart. It's symbolic of, you know, he realized he's met the love of his life and she belongs to somebody else. Yeah. 
So it's, it's counterpointing these moments of his life, like, you know, his first moment aboard the Enterprise. What a beautiful ship, you know, so full of possibility with the last time he ever sees the Enterprise D after it's crashed on uh, Viridian, uh, where he says, what a terrible waste of a ship, so much lost. So it's, it's little moments like this, um, you know, maybe he dies alone in a hospital room. Maybe he dies some other way. He doesn't really know. Uh, you know, maybe he has the children he remembered. Maybe he didn't. Uh, maybe Data was resurrected. Maybe Data wasn't. Uh, and he's sort of, he's caught between all of it and the sort of piece that ties all of these little moments together in chapter 40 is the one where he goes back to visit Anish on the Baku planet, which we mm -hmm. saw in Star Trek Insurrection. And he's basically, you know, suffering from whatever. And she says, I'm glad you finally came back. And they sort of reflect on the conversation they had in that movie about preserving a perfect moment in time, taking a moment and just living in that moment. And so, you know, she, he says, you know, this will be a great help to me, you know, if only because I've been seeing all these moments, I'm unstuck in time, I'm seeing discontinuities. It'll be nice to know which of the things I'm seeing are real. And Anish has to explain to him, that's the first lesson, Jean-Luc. They're all real. Yeah. And so, and again, that's another hint to the reader that, you know, all these different continuities that look like, you know, they've been abandoned or they've never happened or they're forgotten, they're all real. Uh, it even comes down to the Vulcan dictum of nothing unreal exists. Mm -hmm. Well, if it existed even for a moment, it was real. So by the same token, you've got all this. And the other reason that sequence was important is you have him talking about, you know, finding a perfect moment, preserving a perfect moment. And then also talking about things like the garden, uh, preserving a garden. Life is like a garden. This conversation comes up again in, uh, I think, Star Trek Nemesis. And we saw it in a couple of other places that I end up having allusions to in chapter 40. But the reason it's particularly important is that it comes up in a couple of other places that served as sort of key moments of inspiration for this book. Uh, one is in the last words of Leonard Nimoy on Twitter, where his final words that he sort of gave to the world were, life is like a garden. Perfect moments can be had, but not preserved except in memory. Live long yeah. and prosper. Right. And then beyond this, uh, my late idol, Neil Peart, the last work that he created with his bandmates of Rush was an album called Clockwork Angels. And it's sort of this you know, narrative story, which, you know, chronicling the life of a character. And the last song on their last studio album is called The Garden. And it's a very similar idea that in the end, all we really have is, uh, I guess, what we have is the, the product of a life. The measure of a life is a measure of love and respect is yeah. the lyric. And I realize, you know, there's a lot of similarity here to what Nimoy is saying, to what Picard is being told and is understanding with Anish in Insurrection. The same sentiment is expressed again, uh, or previously, I should say, in Star Trek Generations, yes. after they've lost the Enterprise. This is a recurring theme. And then I find it both in Star Trek and in Neil Peart's work. And it also is, uh, you know, an illusion. There's an illusion to it in the work of Voltaire in Candide, where he said, you know, it is all well and good, but now I must tend my own garden. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where the last line, the, the opening line of the last scene of chapter 40 comes from. It's an allusion to Voltaire's Candide. Mm. Uh, you know, this and that and this and that, and this is all well and good, but now it is time for Jean-Luc Picard to tend his own garden. Wow. Uh, and by tend his own garden, it applies both because a vineyard is a type of garden, but the garden is also metaphorical. It's about the life you've lived, the, the, the things that you've brought to fruition through your effort, through your patience, 
through what you've cared about, what you've tended, and it's what you give back to the world. And it's what you leave behind is your garden. Well, I think you've very beautifully anticipated my final question, which was going to be about this theme of living in the moment, which we see throughout this book, perhaps most poignantly when Cisco dies and he mm. tells Bashir, you know, reminds Bashir that all we can do with this, this chance that we have is to make it count, right? To, yeah. to make it matter. Life has no meaning unless you make it mean something. Yeah, yeah. Life is intrinsically meaningless. It only has meaning when we make it mean something. Mm-hmm. Says so go make ours mean something. Right. And I think you you definitely find that when you center yourself and live in the, in, in the moment and remember to cherish every moment um, because it'll never come again, as Picard Absolutely. tells Riker. Yeah. Time is the resource you don't get back. You can, mm-hmm. I, and it's funny. I mean, I sort of learned a, a lesson of that sort early on, maybe 20 some odd years ago, you know, working in short film production. As a producer, you learn quickly that there are all sorts of resources at your command that you can sacrifice some for the sake of others. The one you can never get back is time. Money, you can always try to find another source of funding. Equipment, you can always try to find a replacement piece. Actors, you can always try to find somebody else to play the part or you can find some way to edit around them. There's always you know, some way to get around a resource that has been depleted, wasted, broken, lost, et cetera, except one, and that's time. Yeah. Time is the one resource you cannot get back. You can burn more of it, but you can't get back what you've already lost ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I learned early on, time is critical. And that applies not just to professional work, it applies to life. As I was writing this book, and I was cognizant of the fact that, you know, my mother didn't have much time left. And then after losing Neil, and then losing mom, and I'm, I'm still writing this book, it just it became very apparent to me that, you know, what these characters are dealing with is they are staring death in the face. They know their own death is imminent, but they are raging against the dying of the light. I mean, it's essentially a situation where, okay, yes, it's hopeless, but how do you respond to hopelessness? Do you find a reason to hope anyway? Or do you simply say, I know there's no hope for me, but I'm still not going to go quietly. I'm still going to, still going to fight. I had like this playlist of songs that I put up on Spotify that sort of, you know, acted as the uh, sort of a commentary on a lot of the ongoing storylines. And it was, you know, songs like, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper, uh, <laughs> uh, Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. There's one that I really wanted to share, but I couldn't because it's not on Spotify. It's actually never been officially released. It's by my friend Tom Walker. He's a songwriter. He used to be with a band called Friday's Child back in the 90s. Uh, he's an independent film and TV producer right now. And he wrote this song probably back maybe over a decade ago called Cue the Violins. And it's this sort of, you know, very sort of somber, sad song. I've got his acoustic demo recording of it that I just love that I listen to over and over. And it's got this great lyric where, you know, it's, it seems like it's, you know, uh, this ballad of hopelessness, but then he's got this chorus, which is, you know, and if you want me down, you better stake me to the ground. And if you want me dead, you'd better cut off my head because I'll still be around. Mm -hmm. And I'm realizing in the midst of all this hopelessness that seems to be afflicting the point of view character, what he's saying is, I'm still not going to go quietly. Yeah, I know it's all screwed. I know there's no hope. You want me down? You better stick me down. You want me dead? You better take my head. I'm not giving up. And I just love that sort of defiance in the face of hopelessness. And that's really what I wanted to achieve with the characters in this is them saying, 
So there's no hope. That doesn't mean we quit. Right. We can't win. We can not lose. Well, what a perfect way to end a conversation about a timeline shattering book <laughs> and a book, um, you know, that I think is really poignant uh, in this in this uh, point in history, you know, when a lot does seem like it's hopeless, but we all must find the courage within ourselves and inspiration perhaps in, in literature and science fiction to not lose, not lose this moment and to keep fighting for what is right in the world. Um, whether it's, you know, trying to find a cure for cancer or trying to keep democracy alive or trying to um, fight against climate change so that our children and their children can keep going. So thank you very much for joining me on Strange New Worlds and um, live long and prosper. Thank you for writing. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. It's been a great conversation. I've been building up the courage to ask David Mack to be a guest on this show for years. And I'm so glad I finally did it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Learning the backstory and the thought process behind writing Oblivion's Gate and the rest of the Coda trilogy, as well as seeing where he gets his inspiration from, and how much care he puts into his scientific details, and how much he cares about the symbiosis between science and science fiction, all of it was just such an awesome treat. If you want to follow David Mack's work, you can find him on Facebook at the David Mack and Twitter at David Allen Mack. I'm also on Twitter at Mike Wyatt, M-I-Q-U-A-I, and if you liked today's show, please tell a friend about Strange New Worlds, or leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app. And now, I think I'll go back to tending my garden. Until next time, see you out there. I don't know if you just noticed that like two of me came in, basically my computer crashed for like two seconds and then I rejoined the zoom, but I hope every, yeah. Did you even notice? It's still recording. It's still recording. It's still recording. Cause you're still here. <laughs> and uh, the recording button thing is, is you're going. the recording uh, side though. So did we lose part of the recording? While I'm recording were... to the cloud. So it's, it's going uh... to, to a zoom cloud. So I think everything should be fine. I, this has never happened before. So I, I apologize if it, disrupted you at all but it seems like it didn't because i logged back in and you were still answering I, mean, I, the saw, I saw you I, I saw the yeah i saw you, you sort of froze for a second yeah. and i saw you come back in and i'm like well i mean it, <laughs> it didn't stop me yeah yeah i think it was i just kept on rolling I yeah I you'll edit around it <laughs> i'll edit around it exactly okay cool uh well i'm back i missed maybe like 20 seconds of your answer but i'm sure i'll just listen to it in the recording and it's it's all brilliant so let's hope yeah. <laughs> All right.